I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 to 25. Before we read and before I give an introduction, I just want to thank the church and the elders who did such a wonderful job in feeding this church so well through the summer and July with the word. Chuck Porter's not here today. Um, he and Michelle are down in Parker um, installing Jason Elder or Jason Edwards as the pastor of Reform Heritage Church. We sent them off last week if you were not here. So um, that's where Chuck is. But I just want to thank you as a church, as a congregation. Uh, what a blessing it was to have July uh, completely off. It was very sweet. Thank you. Well, the gospel, beloved, uh, what, what God has done in Christ to save sinners has implications. The gospel, what God has done in Christ to save you, has duties. And I know as evangelicals, as Christians, we don't like the word duty. It sounds legalistic. But the gospel comes with the law. It casts you upon some duties this morning to do. So our outline this morning is two privileges and three duties. Couldn't help but sneak the gospel in there. So two privileges, two gospel privileges, and three duties. There are implications for doctrine or the gospel. The privileges are a confidence to approach God. That's number one. And second, a great priest over the church. We have confidence to approach God. And number two, a great priest over the church. We have three duties out of these two privileges. We need to draw near to God. We need to hold fast the confession. And we need to stir one another up. We need to draw near to God. We need to hold fast the confession. And we need to stir or wholly agitate one another up. All right? May the Lord grant his grace and mercy upon today's exposition. Would you stand today for Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day, drawing near. This is the word of the living God. Thanks be to God. God. You may have a seat. The first privilege we have as God's people is the confidence to approach God. It's an amazing privilege. 
Look at me with verse, verses 19 to 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the way, this is, what, uh, this is how the early church spoke of one another. They called each other family. This is um, the New Testament's actually favorite way to describe the church as brothers and sisters. Okay? That's what we are. So you should do it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, stop there. Um, Privilege number one, we have confidence. That word confidence is one of the author's favorite words, actually, in this letter or this sermon. I like the word confidence. I don't like being weak. I like confident. Okay? He uses it at chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 10. In our um, chapter, just a little later, in verse 35, Draw your eyes there to 10.35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So your confidence is something you have. It is yours. Um, We're not talking about the objective confidence we have in Christ. That's true. But we're talking about the uh, subjective confidence we have by the Spirit of God, by faith, which has a great reward. Now, the word itself means... Boldness. Maybe some of your translations uh, may in fact even have that word. uh, Since we have uh, boldness to enter the holy places. Or um, in the book of Acts, it's used to describe freedom in speech. So we have a a confidence, an unreserved uh, freedom of speech. Uh, When you're talking with someone, uh, this is how it comes off. You're 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 not walking on eggshells. Right? You're free. Freedom in speech. You're confident in what you're speaking about. One commentator says, confidence denotes joyful liberty. That's probably my favorite one. Confidence denotes joyful liberty, which means its counterpart would be reluctance and timidity. And we have confidence to approach God. And the text says, so we have this joyful liberty to enter the holy places. Now that's somewhat strange because in the Old Testament regulations for worship, the priests didn't have a whole lot of confidence entering the holy places. They pretty much just tried to stay alive. Okay? But this author says, no, no, no. Now you have confidence. You have a joyful liberty to enter the holy places. Not a, not a room per se, but the throne room of God to approach God with a joyful liberty. Now, how is this possible? God is a consuming fire. How do we have confidence to approach him? Here's the next phrase. Look at it. By the blood of Jesus. That is the ground of our confidence. Our confidence in approaching God is not rooted in self, in our achievements, or in our afflictions. Okay? We, we can't approach God because we have had a hard life. He's still a consuming fire. Afflictions may be the channel, okay, but they can't be the ground. Not even affliction can be our the ground of our approach to God. So not our achievements, not what we've done, 
nor our afflictions, neither will do. Nor must, we, must our confidence be placed in our fellow man. Uh, Psalm 49, 7. Uh, Truly no man can ransom another, nor give to God the price of his life. Okay? So we can't come to God on the basis of our achievements, afflictions, or our fellow man. Our confidence to approach God Praise be to God is solely upon the blood and righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. William Lindsay writes here this now. Sacrifices of bulls and goats never made real expiation. So all that blood spilled in the old covenant never really made expiation or propitiation. Never. It's all a type for Christ. They, William Lindsay says, nor anything else can quiet the accusing conscience. That's true. Nothing can quiet the accusing conscience. They cannot, Lindsay says, fill the heart of a sinner with God's fatherly love. They cannot impart the conviction that sin has been truly blotted out. Nothing you substitute in the place of Christ will alleviate your condemning conscience. Lindsay says this, but Christ, infinite and eternal as he is, is so fitted to inspire the believer with perfect confidence to approach God. He says, finally, there is nothing more needed to ensure our everlasting acceptance. Nothing else needed than to ensure our assurance and confidence to approach God than the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. We sang it just a minute ago. Wasn't it beautiful? Wasn't that song amazing? My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished and with boldness, confidence I came, McShane says, to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Sidkenu is all things to me. All because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have confidence to approach the living God who is a consuming fire. Because Christ himself was consumed. Second privilege. We'll probably spend most of our time on the duties Hopefully. Second privilege. We have a great priest over the church. We have a great priest over the church. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Notice what it says here. Your eyes should be on your Bibles if they are not. Notice he doesn't say we have a high priest. It's not what he says. He is a great priest. So it is not a relative term, meaning that uh, the author is not comparing Jesus with other priests. It's an absolute term. He's great. He's in our vernacular awesome. It's a word that denotes his excellency, his dignity, his majesty, his splendor and grandeur. He's a great priest. And he's over the house of God, he says. Don't you love that little word? He's over the house of God. 
Jesus rules the church. He is the head, Ephesians 4. He rules us. He governs us. He protects and defends us. He assists us in our worship. He directs the government of the church. He ordains her officers. You and I don't do that. Christ does. He's the head. From him we take our orders and unto him we render our lives. He is over the church. That's really good news. I'm not over this church. The elders aren't over this church. The congregation isn't over this church. Now, let me make one um, little footnote here before we get on to the duties. This does not mean that the church has no power at all. Okay? Christ has vested qualified church officers to govern the church under his lordship, to administer the sacraments, preach the word, in prayer, the means of grace. But our authority as elders is only ministerial and declarative. Okay? That's really good news. We have no authority as elders to tell you how to, um, who you should vote for. Though some people want us to tell you who you should vote for. That is not our authority. Our authority is ministerial and declarative, meaning our, our jurisdiction of authority um, is in the realm of the government and teaching of the scriptures. That's it. So we don't bind conscience on who you should vote for. We don't bind conscience on how to raise your kids. And here's one. We don't tell you if you should wear a mask or not. That is not our authority. Okay? Our authority is ministerial and declarative. Jesus is over the church. Not this congregation, not me, and not the elders. We have a limited authority. Footnote is closed. All right, those are the two privileges. Three duties, okay? Three duties. Number one, we are to draw near. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This also is another favorite uh, term for the apostle, uh, to draw near, to come to, uh, to approach. It's speaking about divine worship, actually, what you're doing right now, both public and private. So it's an exhortation to uh, approach, to draw near, to come to God in love and fellowship. Now, I imagine that sounds probably a little bit ho-hum for many of us. I get to draw near to God? Why wouldn't he want me near to him? A little mundane. 
We get to draw near to God, okay? What's the rest of the verse? And yada, yada, yada. But hold on just a minute here. As I said earlier, God dwells in unapproachable light. He is a consuming fire. And he ushers us into his presence, summons us to draw near to the holy and living God. When he did that to Moses, he said, take your sandals off. Be careful. And we tend to walk in the double doors. We just stroll in. The fact that we get to draw near to the living God is absolutely stunning. We do something uh, extremely daring every service. We have a prayer of invocation. We invoke by that prayer, what Robert did earlier, we are invoking God's presence here. That's dangerous. We are calling on God Come be with us as you summoned us to be with you. Come be with us by your spirit. To have a prayer of invocation is absolutely stunning. To imagine that we could draw near to the living God. It's liturgical suicide in some sense. And he says to do this with a true heart. To draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Come to God with an honest heart. Come to God with a sincere heart. The counterpart, beloved, would be draw near without hypocrisy, without pretending. Without formalism. This was the section of the scriptures where I was uh, truly humbled the most, I think, during the study. Uh, Jesus had many conversations with people, and he extended grace to many. Wicked people. But what he hated most was hypocrites. Those who thought they could approach God because they knew it all. God loves a true heart full of sin. But he hates a false, presumptuous, hypocritical heart. If you are here today and your only claim to be here today is upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, knowing that your heart is full of sin and rebellion and you're not what you want to be, though you're you're not what you were, but you're not what you want to be, but your heart is true, welcome. God delights in such worship. But if you are here today 
because you're more concerned about your reputation, because you know it's the right thing to do. And when you leave here today, you have no intention to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God does not delight in that worship. We approach him with a true heart, an honest one. (laughs) Here is everything I am, Lord. Take it all. No pretense. Draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, never doubting certain that Christ is enough, that his blood is sufficient to atone for our sin. So I appeal to you, beloved. Every week, draw near draw near and draw near with a heart perhaps full of sin but may it be true may it be true this is where you take your sin right here second duty hold fast the confession verse 23 hold fast the confession verse 23 hold us let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful Hold fast, uh, keep in possession, press forward. Hold fast the confession of your hope. The confession of your hope being all those things that revolve around God and Christ. Hold it fast, he says, in the midst of trials and allurements of the world. Press on, dear Christian, endure with all you have. It is the one who endures to the what? To the end who will be saved. Not the one who raised a hand, not the one who wrote on a card. Though, you want to write on a card to tell you that you got saved, go be it. Fine, fine with me. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Press on, hold fast. This would have hit home for the church here in Rome or perhaps Judea where this letter was given. It's original audience. It was difficult being a Christian in the first century. Extremely difficult. There was a cost. Revelation 2, the church at Pergamum, we are told that Antipas was killed for his faith. He was a faithful witness. Perhaps some are reading this letter and they see the words in verse 23 and they say, Ah, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And they're looking around the congregation and perhaps some of the people in the church these days are missing limbs. Scars from not compromising with Rome. Perhaps some in the congregation are missing because they've died precisely because they did hold fast the confession precisely because they pressed on and endured all their might. This would have hit home. Let us hold fast the confession. He says without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without bending, tilting, bending on either side. Hold fast without vacillating. Stop being unstable, he says. Once you've settled the great things of God and Christ in your mind, root yourself in them. Ground yourself in the doctrines of justification, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of assurance. Ground yourself in them. Once they are part of you, do not waver, he says. 
Colossians 2.7 says, Ground yourself in these truths, beloved, and do not move. And he says, For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I love this phrase. If this phrase was not there, I'd be shaking in my boots. He's faithful. Why do you think that phrase is there? Because we waver. We are unstable. We're unfaithful. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Why? How? Because he who promised is faithful. Actually, the word faithful is to the front of the phrase. So faithful is he for emphasis. Faithful is he who promised. God is faithful, he says. When you waver, he won't. He's stable when you're not. As we walk this Christian life congregation, as we draw near to God, as we hold fast our confession, never forget that as you waver, as you are unstable, God is faithful, sustaining you with grace unimaginable in this life. Number three. I'll close with this. Stir one another up. Stir one another up, verses 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word to stir up, it's provoke. It's to have an earnest watchfulness over each other. Uh, to take an interest in the brethren. So you have a watchfulness over your own life, and the apostle says here, you need to have a mutual watchfulness over those brothers and sisters in your local church. He says, consider how to st- help them grow and mature, mature. Consider how to stir them up to love and good works. Think about it, he says. Consider it. Not just, hey, that's a nice dress. Those are nice shoes. How to stir them up to love and good works, to take a spiritual interest in the life of your brothers and sisters. How is this done? Well, the participle tells us. Love participles, don't you? I take that as a no. What does it look like to stir one another up to love and good works? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I thought about putting this as its own sermon, but I'll make my comments somewhat brief. Already in the early life of the church, there were some in the church who neglected the public and private gatherings of the church. They neglected to meet together, it says. It was, look at your text, their habit, their custom to neglect Christian fellowship. 
Now, they could have done this by, I don't know, um, not so abrasive terms, but the word neglect means uh, desertion. Peter O'Brien, therefore, says, quote, the failure of some to continue attending the gatherings of the church is not simply neglect, but wrongful abandonment. They were gone. I don't, I don't need the church. I'm mature. The church is for the immature. I quit church. That's a book, by the way, quitting church. Its argument is the faithful don't need church. The apostle would not have written that book. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And yet there are many today who willingly live their Christian lives outside the nurturing womb of a local church with little and no attention to the means of grace by which one grows. (laughs) The means of grace displayed right here in this room is how Christians grow. If you neglect this gathering, you won't, I promise you, you will not grow. You will not. You grow by the means of grace God has given. The public gathering of the saints is how we grow. Now, there are private gatherings of the church that I think we ought to attend as well. And I am not here to guilt you into other ministries. This is not what this is about. But the Puritans had um, a word called conferencing is what they called it. Um, it's actually the opposite of what we would do. Conferences in our context are like these big gatherings. Conferencing in the Puritan language was these smaller um, friendships where, where people would gather to provoke one another to love and good deeds. They, they, were, they were taking a spiritual interest in one another. It was Christian friendship, Christian fellowship. So I think the, the point here being is that we stir one another up to love and good works. As we draw near, hold fast, we do this by one another, a corporate assembly. Sanctification is a, um, a corporate work, a corporate endeavor. Okay? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. It's a call to prize church. Most of the time we see church, many in our day, maybe perhaps see church as just one ball in the midst of 20 in our life that we're just trying to juggle. I got kids sports and dinner to make and laundry to do. And there's, there's church right up there. I do not see that in the word of God. Church is not one ball to juggle. It is the ball to have in your hand. And to prize. The gathering of God's people is how we grow. Lastly, beloved. Encouraging one another, the text says. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing 
near. It's a sobering motivation, this text is, to persevere. This is not an empty scare tactic. You know, he's coming. Better get ready. That's not what this is about. This is a sobering motivation. Encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The final day is approaching, beloved. The final day is coming. Every single one of us is careening towards the day of our death. And no one knows the hour nor the time of that day. You may think you have time to get things right with God and with others. But you may not have that time. The hourglass of your life is draining. The sands of time are sinking, as the hymn says, and the last grain of sand will fall. The day is drawing near. What do you want to be doing when that day comes? How do you want to be living when that day comes? You want to spend your weekends on the slopes? How do you want to be living? When that day drops. The author says, um, because of what Christ has done on the tree, we ought to be drawing near, holding fast, and stirring one another up to love and good works. Precisely, and most importantly, right in this room in this gathering. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. We thank you that he does give us a confidence to approach. His blood is sufficient for all that we need and all that we are. And from that union, now we Live a life that brings glory and honor to you. Cause this church to be a people that are underwhelmed with ourselves and overwhelmed with you and therefore draw near. Cause us to be a people that love and treasure Christ and partake in the ordinary means of grace to grow. Keep us from the world and keep us from the evil one. We thank you for this great feast of the Lord's Supper that reminds us just what Christ has done for us on that sacred tree. And we eat and we drink with joy in our souls, knowing that we ourselves don't need to climb upon the tree ourselves, but you've done it all, Lord. And so we eat and drink in fellowship with one another and with joy.